evening, friends. Good evening, and welcome to the broadcast. This is Corbett Report Radio, and of course, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you tonight, as every night, all the way from my home recording studios here in the sunny climes of western Japan. And it is a bright, sunshiny day for us here in Japan on January 11th at 2 in the afternoon, but it's probably more like、uh, a cold and miserable evening for a lot of you in North America, unfortunately. So, wherever you are, and of course, however you're tuned in tonight, I do hope that you are safe, sound, warm, and at least happy enough that you can ensconce yourself for what promises to be a very interesting conversation tonight as we talk to Andrew Gavin Marshall of the People's Book Project.com. But before we bring Andrew up, I wanted to go over,、uh, first of all, what's coming up on the broadcast later this week. I'd just like to remind everyone that tomorrow night, that would be Wednesday night for you in North America,、uh, we're going to be talking to Madison Rupert of EndTheLie.com, a very wonderful resource for breaking news and information headlines from all around the world that I do suggest people check out、uh, ahead of time. So please go to EndTheLie.com, take a look at, through some of the headlines. We will have Madison Rupert, the editor of EndTheLie.com, on tomorrow night to talk about all the latest news and information, including geopolitics and I'm sure Ron Paul and other such、uh, topics. And also on the program Thursday night, we'll be talking to James Evan Pilato for our weekly Food World Order segment, where we talk to James Evan Pilato of, of course, MediaMonarchy.com and NewWorldNextWeek.com and FoodWorldOrder.com. We'll be talking about the latest in food, health, and environment. And then Friday night, we will have Friday night highlights where we dip into the CorbettReport.com archives for some interviews, articles, videos, and other media that have been produced there over the past five years. But I wanted to start tonight by,、uh, well, thanking one of the listeners who sent in an email yesterday about、uh, one of the articles that I cited in yesterday's broadcast. And for those of you who did tune in last night, you'll know that I was talking about 2012, the year that is to come, and what we might expect to see over the course of the next year. And talking about the ramifications of austerity measures and the financial collapse, I brought up a 2005 article from The Telegraph that ran under the headline If You Don't Take a Job as a Prostitute, We Can Stop Your Benefits, talking about a 25 year old waitress. Who was turned down for unemployment benefits under German laws because she refused to apply for a job as a prostitute, which、uh, the German government was、uh, telling her she had to do in order to receive her unemployment benefits? Well,、uh, thankfully, one of the listeners、uh, wrote in to, to note that that was a false story that was, in fact, debunked by Snopes.com. And for those of you who don't know about Snopes, that's one of those websites that. Tries to debunk various stories, and although they are great on urban legends and rumors and things, they are generally、uh, far, far less,、uh, less uh, I suppose, on the mark when it comes to political topics in, in many respects. So I don't necessarily recommend them as a great source for debunking false stories, but certainly in this case, they did take the time to track down the source of this alleged、uh, 25 year old waitress story. And found that the, the original source of it comes from a, a German newspaper that reported、uh, basically about the possibility of this happening. And somehow in the translation, the possibility of some sort of hypothetical situation like this happening was then converted in the telegraph into something that actually did happen to some unnamed 25 year old waitress. And,、uh, and I would suggest that you go and check out that debunking because they go into some detail and give some of the sources for this article. 
that shows that uh, there's really no, no evidence whatsoever to back up the Telegraph story. So until uh, really they produce any sort of scrap of evidence that this is actually based on something real, we can safely assume it to be false. So that was a, a very, very uh, nice thing for a listener to send in. I'm always, always open to corrections and uh, having people tell me uh, when I'm wrong. So once again, that's on Snopes.com slash media slash not news slash brothel dot ASP if you want to check that out for yourself. But let's switch topics. When we come back, we'll be talking to Andrew Gret, Gavin Marshall of thepeoplesbookproject.com. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio, friends. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're honored to be joined on the line from Canada by Andrew Gavin Marshall. And I'm sure some of the listeners and viewers out there uh, of Corbett Report's uh, previous media will already be familiar with Andrew, and perhaps you'll be familiar with him from his uh, his work at uh, GlobalResearch.ca in the past, and uh, now, of course, he's also a member of the Boiling Frogs Post team at BoilingFrogsPost.com, as I was mentioning on the broadcast last night. But uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Andrew, uh, suffice it to say he's a, a really excellent researcher who's been doing some incredibly detailed research on all, all manner of different topics, but, but I guess broadly related to the idea of, of foundations and, and foundation funding and how that directs society and, uh, and what direction they're taking society in. And he can be found at thepeoplesbookproject.com. And the People's Book Project, for people who haven't heard about it yet, is a very exciting and, I think, revolutionary idea for trying to combat the, the billions and trillions of dollars, ultimately, that the various foundations and, uh, and lobbies and all of that can throw in various directions to try to take society in a certain direction. Well, the people uh, are the power, and they can direct their money away from the corporations and foundations and towards things like the People's Book Project. So I'm excited to talk about this, uh, I think, very revolutionary and hopefully um, successful experiment in funding a project that will actually be worthwhile. So with that as a preamble, Andrew Gavin Marshall, thank you so much for coming on tonight. Uh, thanks very much for having me and for what I think is the best endorsement I've had yet. So thank you. <laughs> well, it's certainly, I think, uh, an endorsement that's well-earned because, uh, really, there's a lot of people that, that write in um, to, to me and to, I'm sure to many others in the media asking for solutions and what, what, what do you propose, what is your idea for a solution. Well, here is an idea that, that truly is revolutionary in the way that, uh, that it could play out if people got on board with it. And, uh, and that's why I've supported it myself. I, I've just, um, I, again, I don't talk about things, I do it, and, and then promote it on my show. So I've just donated myself to the People's Book Project because I think it is something oh, worth donating to. Well, no problem at all about that because, uh, as I say, I think this is something worth uh, donating to, and I think it's an idea whose time has come. But for those who don't know anything at all about the People's Book Project or your work, perhaps you can start by introducing yourself and your background and then talk a little bit about this project. Sure. Um, I've been doing research and writing for... Uh, about three or four years now. I'm 24 years old. I'm a student uh, in Montreal, Canada. I'm still working on my bachelor's, but I've taken a lot of time off to focus on my own research and writing. Um, I have a website, uh, andrewgavinmarshall.com, and as you mentioned, thepeoplesbookproject.com. And that is a project that I started up in September, uh, this past September. Uh, and it's essentially a way of building support, raising funds, promoting, and making possible 
uh, the idea to create uh, a multi-volume book. So currently, it's uh, the idea is three volumes, uh, and the book itself, as yet untitled, I just refer to it as the book project, um, is a highly critical examination, historical examination of ideas and institutions of power in our world. Uh, so essentially, it asks certain questions such as, what is the nature of our society? How did we get here? Who brought us here? Uh, where are we going? When will we get there and why? And so just some small questions about the world and history. But uh, I tried to undertake a really uh, detailed, I can't say comprehensive, but I, because I find myself uh, constantly having to cut out things and leave things aside. And uh, those type of decisions are very hard to make because you just want to put in as much as possible. But uh, attempting to be as... Uh, I'm not the most concise person, obviously, but attempting to be as concise as possible, but really looking at um, the power of ideas and institutions of power. And then with that, looking at uh, ideas of resistance, uh, revolution, change, uh, how this is possible, uh, how it's been looking at the sort of hidden history that we have of uh, revolutionary ideas, which isn't discussed, which isn't disseminated, which isn't well-known, but it's there and it's been extremely influential. And also these revolutionary philosophies, uh, and in particular I'm referring to uh, anarchist philosophy and its modern history and indeed ancient history, goes back thousands of years if you look at Chinese Taoism, um, how it has accurately predicted the course of indeed the 20th century uh, and it's accurately predicted. And I'm talking about theorists who were talking and writing over 150 years ago who predicted uh, much of the course of uh, the past 150 years. And, of course, no other philosophy can make such a claim. Uh, and nobody really knows about this because you don't study the philosophies and theories that turn out to be right. Uh, you study the philosophies and theories that are categorically wrong. Uh, and that's what you learn in school, and that's what you're taught and. Uh, extolled through educational institutions and the media and uh, policy circles. And so I'm hoping to challenge all these uh, ideas and institutions of power. Look at the real causes. That it's, uh, of course, the names, as you mentioned, the foundations, such as Rockefeller Foundation, Carnegie Corporation, Ford Foundation. Uh, these are important. I, I definitely name names. I focus uh, on individuals, you know, there's a lot in there about the Rothschild family, the Rockefeller family. Uh, but I also don't want to get lost in the names. Uh, and what I mean is essentially that these families, dynasties, modern dynasties, they rose up uh, because they were able to rise up. So I look at what the conditions were. What were the ideas and institutions that allowed these families to rise up? Because our problem is not these families. It's the the system that allowed them to rise up, that allowed them to become so powerful. And so we have to look back further into history. So I look at education, the history of education, university, uh, the history of psychiatry, the history of central banking, finance, capitalism, the nation state, um, uh, a lot of technological, scientific history, of course, the foundations, the emergence of Ideas of social control, the consumer society, advertising, public relations, propaganda, 
um, look at the manifestation of imperialism. So you have the European empires, colonization, slavery, race, uh, revolution. You look at, uh, it takes a look at uh, the American empire, of course, uh, which is largely the second volume of the book. Um, and looking at its various manifestations from the foundations to the CIA, the Pentagon, uh, its educational institutions, the media. Uh, and, of course, it goes right up to today. And, in, and I look at the transformations taking place today, moving towards a global governance system, where that's leading us, what type of society. Uh, and essentially, it takes a lot of the ideas of, of uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World in that sense and applies them sort of updates them to the modern context uh, with information that we have uh, today and looking at the changes that have taken place since Aldous Huxley wrote that in the 30s and his update to it in the 60s. Uh, and it's sort of looking at how far along we are, uh, where we're going, and then, of course, what we can do to change that. Well, it's, it's often said that, uh, that it's fruitless to be hacking at branches of problems when we could be attacking the root of the problem and, and uprooting it and getting rid of it. And if, I think if there's any apt description for your work overall, it would be that, uh, that you are trying to uproot and, and expose and, and hopefully do some damage to those roots of the system, which unfortunately has, has really gripped our world for so long, which uh, I think probably that description that you just gave at least gives the uh, the listeners who don't know of your work uh, some some idea of it, the scope of what you're doing. But but concentrating specifically on on the book project and the way that it's being funded, let's talk a little bit about that because I really do think this is a, a good idea, and it's one of those uh, ideas that that should be a lot more successful than than it has been so far. So mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about that. Well, it's uh, essentially about raising uh, money through donations from people uh, around the world and. Donations have come in from Malaysia, Australia, America, Canada, Europe, uh, South America. They've come from all around the world. And generally and now it's... Japan. Yeah, now Japan, exactly. Another one's the list. Uh, but essentially it's... Um, the idea is to uh, raise donations. And what I've been doing up until now uh, has been logging my hours that I work. So I, uh, I take $15 an hour for work. I log the hours each week, uh, discuss... Uh, what I've been writing, what I'm researching. I give out excerpts. I've put up uh, several excerpts from the book so far from what I've been writing. All, of course, very rough drafts, but you get an idea of the subject matter. Um, and then, uh, you know, ask for suggestions. Ask what people are, are interested in hearing about to engage with the people who are donating so that people can actually become a part of the process of writing the book. And indeed, uh, up until... From September until now, uh, everything that I've written, I've written the, a large chunk of, of the book in the amount of that time. So far, I have over 500 pages um, of material, single-spaced, and a great chunk of that uh, has been directly because people have, has been made possible because people have been uh, giving donations, and uh, it allows me to... Uh, you know, the way that I post it allows people to see uh, where their money is going, what it's being used for. And then they can actually read with the excerpts uh, results of that work. And uh, But currently what I'm trying to do is, uh, because that, the sort of uh, hourly wages has been quite uh, tenuous and challenging. and it, It's still a, an experimental project, and, and I'm trying a new thing starting this week where I'm aiming to 
have a sort of a fundraiser to raise a certain amount of money, and this time I'm aiming for $800 to be raised uh, to support me writing, finishing four chapters. And these chapters are specifically rated, related to the American empire uh, in different regions of the world. So analyzing how the American empire has uh, taken over those regions. Exactly right, and for people who haven't yet, I suggest they go to the About the Project part of the peoplesbookproject.com to read more about this idea and how it hopefully, if it's successful, it can be expanded into other things, not just the funding of this book. But uh, let's come back right after this. Broadcast friends, James Corbett here at CorbettReport.com. Tonight we're talking to Andrew Gavin Marshall of the People's Book Project.com, and we've been talking a little bit about that project and how people can get on board with it. And certainly I suggest that you go and uh, take a look at the website and just take a look around and see if that's something that you're on board with supporting. You can also check out his personal website at AndrewGavinMarshall.com. That's all one word. Andrew Gavin Marshall, that's Marshall with two L's. And when you're there, you'll see that the most recent post is an announcement of a brand new podcast that uh, Andrew is going to be hosting on BoilingFrogsPost.com, Sibel Edmonds' website that I myself am also a partner of. And he's launching a new uh, weekly podcast called Empire, Power, and People that I myself am personally very much looking forward to. But I don't really know much of the detail about this podcast. So, Andrew, um, let's let's start talking about this. First of all, how did you get in touch with Sibel, and, and how did that all develop? Um, that happened uh, probably since I started the book project. Um, it, well, actually, I think a little while before, through you. Um, doing a, uh, an interview with uh, uh, your show and uh, on foundations and came into contact with Sybil through that and she was interested in my work and started posting a lot of uh, my essays and research on her site and we kept in touch and recently she uh, offered the opportunity, the amazing opportunity to do this podcast show uh, with Boiling Frogs Post and I just did the uh, recorded it today, and it, the first one will be premiering tomorrow, and it's quite a, a long 40-minute introductory episode, uh, and um, I'm sure there'll be a lot more um, <laughs> long ones to follow. Again, I'm not that great with being concise, but uh, it's uh, it'll be an interesting show, and uh, like the title suggests, Empire, Power, and People, it's it's not necessarily confined to one specific topic. In fact, it's generally, and broadly speaking, very much related to the book itself in, in the subject matter because it's so expansive and interrelated and, and uh, interdependent um, that I just like to focus on essentially ideas and institutions and people and really studying critically power um, Itself. What is the nature of power? What are the ideas of power, the institutions of power, the people of power, and then what can everybody else do about that to change that? And so uh, the first episode that uh, we'll be premiering tomorrow uh, is on the origins of the American Empire, uh, taking a look at the actual documents and statements. Uh, it's the American Empire in their own words. That's the name of the first show, because I look at the construction of the American Empire using the words 
the actual quotes of those who made it, so that you can sort of see what it is, uh, uh, what it was intended to be, and sort of deconstructing all the myths that either America is not an empire, or it's a benevolent empire, or it's an accidental empire, or all these other words that are used to describe America and the world today. So uh, it will be, uh, the podcast will be continuing um, on a weekly basis, and there's no limit to the subjects I will surely cover. And, um, and Simple Edmonds and Boiling Frog Post are amazing resources and uh, excellent champions of uh, absolute independence in uh, those who they support. And I really could not be more thankful or happy to be a part of this. Well, let me just echo that. And for people who don't follow BoilingFrogsPost.com, I don't think they realize just how much work Sibel is putting in. Just incredible, uh, even just the editorial roundups, the news and editorials at the mm-hmm. end of every day, she, she does an incredible uh, roundup of, of media and, and articles and things that you really won't find even on other alternative media websites. Just an incredible treasure trove of information. And uh, she has been quietly assembling, I think, a, a great team including yourself and Peter B. Collins and Paul Jamiel and Bill Bergman and many other c- occasional contributors. So, um, and yourself. I really do. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm blushing now. Um, but, uh, but no, I, I really do recommend it as a source for people who haven't yet done so because I, I really do think Blowing Frogs Post is a, is a great place. So regarding the podcast, do you think that uh, it's going to be a, a kind of an audio monologue format every week? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, it would it, it's a great uh, sort of addition to the even to the book project itself because uh, you can talk about you know all the research I, I come across and, and focusing on whatever I'll be generally writing and researching each week I can then just talk about which is great because uh, for me I don't really understand uh, a subject or a topic myself until I write about it and I can't really um, uh, and then it, it helps you more to just talk about it, to explain it, to discuss it. And uh, so this, it, it helps me as much, it helps educate myself as much as it does anybody else. And I think it can be a great um, uh, addition to the book project and to what I'm researching and writing there and to help share that with other people because uh, there's so much in there that I research on a daily or weekly basis that I can't even write about and get out. So at least I can... Uh, talk about these things if I can't even write that fast. And uh, and so it's a, a great venue to uh, sort of get out a lot of this information. And I think generally the monologue aspect is um, uh, the easiest uh, for me to do. And just in terms of it really allows me to be able to expand upon subjects. Um, and there's a reason why I'm not able to be concise because things are very... <laughs> um, difficult to bring down to a two-minute segment. So I, I certainly uh, can relate to that, and I can also relate to having too much to talk about. I have uh, five days a week, uh, a radio show and a podcast and videos, and I still don't don't have enough time to say it all. But on that note, we're uh, up against a break, so let's take a short break, and we'll be right back with Andrew Gavin Marshall of thepeoplesbookproject.com. <laughs> You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Welcome back. 
back to the broadcast, friends. James Corbett here of CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio as we're talking to Andrew Gavin Marshall of AndrewGavinMarshall.com and ThePeoplesBookProject.com. And we just talked a little bit about Empire, Power, and People, Andrew's forthcoming podcast from BoilingFrogsPost.com, the first edition of which will be available tomorrow, absolutely free to the public and free to all. So I do suggest you tune into BoilingFrogsPost.com tomorrow to check that out. And I know I will be. I'm waiting with bated breath uh, for that. But also, we're talking, of course, about the People's Book Project and the the long-term research that Andrew has been engaged in, taking a look at the institutions, foundations, and and other institutional structures that have undergirded the the power structure in our society. And on that note, uh, once again, I do suggest you go to thepeoplesbookproject.com to take a look at some of the sample chapters and some of the samples that, uh, of the work that Andrew has been doing on this subject. And once you do, you'll start to see uh, all sorts of very interesting uh, ideas and articles that have been posted about various subjects uh, from organized terror and ethnic cleansing in Palestine to the origins of imperial Israel and uh, the American Empire in Latin America, and many other very interesting topics. So, Andrew, I know you've been doing a lot of research on this for quite a long time. Perhaps we can start uh, talking about some of this by by getting into the research itself and talking about some of the sources that you've consulted over the years and specifically in this book to try to put some of the pieces together and unearth some of, some things that people may, may not have encountered before um, in the academic or even the alternative literature. Uh, yeah, all right. Um, I mean, for the the sources uh, and references, um, I have, uh, well, in what I've written so far, I literally have thousands of citations at this point, but these, uh, I go to a, a wide range of different sources uh, and resources, and, uh, of course, there's a lot of history books, research books, um, uh, a lot of the time uh, researchers or academics get exclusive access to various archives. Um, so, for example, in the the portion of the book where I discuss, or a chapter of the book where I discuss population control, I largely use Michael Connolly's fatal misconception because he had uh, access that nobody else had to the archives of the Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation and other population council, etc. So he has more inside uh, knowledge and documented proof. Um, I also end up going to uh, foundation archives uh, or grants or whatever they have available online. Um, in terms of discussing a lot of the recent research and writing I've been doing is on the early history of the American Empire, so uh, from the 30s going into the 40s and the post-war period. And to manage a lot of that research, um, usually I very much rely upon um, combination, uh, of course, depending on the subject, but a combination of uh, available uh, articles from around the world, various news sources, uh, but uh, history books, etc., but a large degree of academic journals. Um, so whatever subject I'm on, whether it's the history of education, whether it's foundations, whether it's politics, economics, sociology, psychology, psychiatry, etc., I tend to go to their um, respective journals and academic journals, and I generally search for the more, uh, of course, they, they have to review the common literature, but I search for the radical, uh, the highly critical analyses within each area um, of study, and then you can get the more 
um, nuanced and comprehensive ideas because, of course, the word radical, I'm, I'm not an uh, apologetic for calling myself radical because if you look at the, his, the origins, the Latin word uh, radicalis means the root of. So radical ideas simply get to the root of the issues. So no matter what subject you're discussing, you should be looking at radical ideas because then you're getting to the root actually is. And so uh, a lot of the sources for the American empire itself uh, come directly from the archives of the National Security Council, the U.S. State Department, and a lot of this doesn't even appear in the academic literature. You have to literally go to the websites of the U.S. State Department, the National Security Council archives, and search through them. And they don't have a good search system, so a lot of it is download, read hundreds of pages, and maybe find a quote or two worth taking. But... Um, ultimately, with, with what you're able to actually extract from them, it's worth it. And some of the quotes are incredible, and they really reveal sort of the, uh, the underbelly of the American empire, what, what's actually being said in the quarters of power, instead of just relying upon other people's interpretation or perspective to the heart of the beast, straight to the, uh, the foundation executives, to the think tank presidents, to the... Uh, universities to the secretaries of state, national advisors, and I let them, and bankers and politicians, and I let them say, I let them speak for themselves. And in so doing, uh, people can get a better understanding of what is really going on, because uh, when they don't think anybody's listening, they're quite blunt in what they say, and it's quite revealing. That's exactly right, and that's why it is so important to be digging out some of these sources that, that again, there, there tend to be a certain number of sources that get kicked around a lot and, and frequently and get uh, oft-quoted until they're known by heart. But then there's all this treasure trove of material that gets buried in archives and, and not really uh, looked at by researchers. So that's, I think, the real value of this type of work and why uh, it's important to, to be supporting book projects and other uh, sort of longer-term, wider-scope uh, pieces of reporting and, 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 um, and work than simply the, the day-to-day news cycle type of reporting that goes on in a lot of the alternative media. And, uh, and that's why I think I'm excited about this uh, book project as a whole. And right now I understand you're working on some chapters and looking for funding specifically for chapters that you're working on related to the idea of the, the grand area of the Americas, about the, the American empire as a whole. Let's talk a little bit about that idea and, and what you've uncovered so far in your research. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of this, uh, the information itself, speaking of sources, comes from uh, the Council on Foreign Relations. They had a former, uh, and of course the U.S. State Department. Um, and why this is so is because in 1939, as... Uh, World War II uh, was beginning as Germany invaded Poland. Uh, the Council on Foreign Relations and the United States State Department began a top-secret uh, program, a top-secret collusion between them, which was financed entirely by the Rockefeller Foundation. This was referred to as the War and Peace Studies Project. Uh, since then, a lot of the State Department uh, records, as well as Council on Foreign Relations documents, have been made uh, publicly available. Um, uh, Shoup and Minter were two writers who wrote a book on the Council on Foreign Relations uh, and detailed this project better than anywhere else I've seen it, which is uh, Imperial Brain Trust. Uh, that book came out in the 1980s, I believe, uh, and it's the best one on the subject. 
but the CFR and the State Department came up with an idea, uh, and they were planning for the American entry into the war. And this is 1939. America didn't enter the war until after Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. So at least two years previous, the CFR and State Department uh, had guaranteed that America would enter the war, and they were even, even in 1940 calling for massive armament, uh, control of the seas, a global military force. Of course, this was to maintain peace, in their words, but also domination. And uh, on that note, they were also constructing a uh, the post-war world, or in their own worlds, uh, an American-dominated new world order. Uh, and a specific program they came up with a plan was what was called the Grand Area Designs, or the Grand Area Plans. And the Grand Area was uh, first articulated in 1940, and uh, it essentially amounted to um, breaking the world up into specific regions or blocks. So you had uh, German-dominated Europe, and that was presumed at the time, of course, early 1940, it was presumed to be uh, dominated by Germany for the future. So their plans were that German, Nazi Germany would control Europe and America would control the Western Hemisphere, so uh, the United States, Central, South America, the Caribbean, of course. Um, and then there was uh, East Asia, uh, or the Far East, as they called it. Um, and uh, then there was the, the Near East, the Middle East. Uh, and they sort of broke up these... Uh, global regions, and the studies they did actually discuss the uh, raw materials, the imports, exports of these regions, and they asked you questions like, uh, is the Western Hemisphere stable under, on its own, or does the United States need to expand its sphere of influence? And this is important because there's a, a specific word for this, a German word, of course, a German word, but it's called Liebenstraum. And that word first appeared back when uh, the early German Empire was expanding into Africa and committing a f its first Holocaust in, in West Africa, or South Africa, excuse me. Um, and uh, that was, uh, the German word living space implies that um, as the, the state, the empire, expands, it needs more resources to grow and to build strength, so it needs to take over other territories. Uh, Hitler and the Nazis used the word Liebenstrom in justifying living space, in justifying they're taking the Rhineland, the Ruhr. These were resource-rich areas. We need our living space if we are to grow as a strong nation. And then we need uh, Czechoslovakia. We need Austria. That's more Liebenstrom, more living space, because it provides uh, the resources, the necessity, the, the land, um, and the, the political support that's necessary to build up our state. And so there was a prominent Council on Foreign Relations leader who was one of the most um, influential uh, individuals in the War and Peace Studies Project with the State Department. His name is Isaiah Bowman. He was a, a geographer. And uh, so it was only natural that he was very focused on managing the grand areas of the world. And he stated at a, a secret, top-secret Council on Foreign Relations meeting in 1942 that if the Germans have their Liebenstrom, uh, the Americans should have their Liebenstrom. And he declared that the American Liebenstrom is a global Liebenstrom. So, of course, in 1942, 
uh, Americans had entered the war, and they, they were now planning that the Germans would no longer dominate Europe. So Europe was considered to be part of um, the American-controlled, dominated Grand Areas. And at this point, in 42, 43, the Grand Area plans expanded to include essentially the entire world. So uh, up through uh, 43 and 44, or 42 and 43, you also had them planning to create new institutions to manage the grand areas of the world. Because it was very important at this time, I mean, imperialism, formal imperialism, was being entirely discredited by the war. Uh, there was nationalistic movements emerging all over the world, in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia, India especially. Um, so formal imperialism, the age of formal empires, was coming to an end. This wasn't lost on the strategic banners. Uh, so they said that we needed new institutions to sort of exert our power through, and that it would be best if they were international in scope, or in their character at least, um, so that we, it could seem like it's, it's not necessarily our empire, it's just a new world order. And uh, they said that we need, and they stated very clearly in 1942 in their documents, that we need uh, one institution uh, relating to stabilizing currencies, another related to investments, and of course these institutions became the World Bank and the IMF. Uh, officially, they didn't, uh, they weren't created or thought up until 1944 at the Bretton Woods Conference where they were established. But several years previous, they were um, thought up and planned for at the Council on Foreign Relations in the State Department. And then Isaiah Bowman himself also came up with the idea of the United Nations as a great means of exerting American hegemony around the world without the formal image of imperial conquest. And those are his words. And uh, by 1944, uh, Franklin Roosevelt referred to this small little team of his at the State Department full of Council on Foreign Relations members as uh, my post-war advisors. Uh, and that was uh, FDR's words. And, um, and then, indeed, when Truman came in, a lot of this was uh, established, and they really, uh, truly shaped the post-war world uh, and also were highly influential in the construction of the Cold War itself. Uh, and so it was, the grand areas were essentially uh, set up and established. And so Latin America, uh, I mean, going back to stated that the Western Hemisphere belongs to the United States. Um, so that was just assumed to be a part of America's grand area. Uh, but they were also extremely, in the post-war period, they were extremely interested in Southeast Asia. Uh, and, of course, that led to the Vietnam War. Uh, however, their, their main interest in Southeast Asia was Indonesia, which is a jewel of resources, the, the prize. I believe that's what Nixon referred to it uh, as in the 1960s, uh, the greatest prize. And, uh, and so that, that was their main interest in that region, all the resources, and uh, they were very, very interested in controlling that in the immediate post-war period. And uh, then they also, of course, became very interested in the Middle East with the partition in Palestine and the establishment of the State of Israel in 1947-48. Uh, and then, of course, with uh, Nasser coming to power in Egypt, a nationalistic, anti-imperial uh, Arab leader uh, who became 
incredibly uh, powerful and influential, promoting pan-Arabism. This was a great threat, so they really needed to counter Nasserism and nationalism, uh, or radical nationalism. Nationalism is what they referred to it as in that region. Um, At first, they were not very interested in uh, Africa itself. Um, In fact, George Kennan, who was uh, the... Uh, State Department policy planner. He also came up with the idea of containment uh, to manage the world for uh, nearly 60 years of U.S. policy. Uh, In a 1948 policy planning, State Department policy planning division study called Review of Current Trends in U.S. Foreign Policy, uh, George Kennan, uh, this was the State Department plan essentially laid out the Grand Area designs in official U.S. policy. And the only place I was able to find this document, I searched literally for hours trying to find this document, the only place I found it was in the State Department archives. And I highly recommend finding it and reading the original in its full because the quotes in it are incredible. You won't find it anywhere else. Uh, For Africa, uh, in it he directly states, first of all, that we need to establish a European Union and that Europe should exploit Africa for its resources. That was the point of Africa. No no surprise there, unfortunately. Absolutely. Well, uh, some incredible research. Once again, we're talking to Andrew Gavin Marshall of thepeoplesbookproject.com. So let's take a short breather, and we'll be back to close up right after this. We are in the closing minutes of tonight's broadcast, and we are talking to Andrew Gavin Marshall of thepeoplesbookproject.com. And just before the break, we were talking about an interesting quotation that Andrew unearthed from George F. Kennan, an American diplomat and historian known as the father of containment who helped inspire the Truman Doctrine and basically kicked off the Cold War. So, So, Andrew, what was the quotation? Okay, well, from the 1948 State Department document, and this is relevant uh, from 1948 for the past 64 years up until present day and into the future. This essentially defines American policy since the period and into our future. And he stated that in the immediate post-war period, America had 50% of the world wealth, but 6.3% of the world's population. He described this as a particularly great disparity likely to create envy and resentment. And so he said the task for America, quote, is to devise a pattern of relationships which will permit us to maintain this position of disparity without positive detriment to our national security. To do so, we will have to dispense with all sentimentality and daydreaming, and our attention will have to be concentrated everywhere on our immediate national objectives. We need not deceive ourselves that we can afford today the luxury of altruism and world benefaction. So it's official U.S. government policy to maintain this position of disparity in the world. And that's empire in their own words. Simple. 
It's simple indeed, but unfortunately it does go over the heads of so many people who just go along with the propaganda that we've been fed about the accidental American empire and all of the other narratives that have been crafted to lead people down blind alleys, whereas the real research exposes that this is in fact a carefully planned and calculated attempt to establish an institutional framework to really capture society and lead it in a certain direction. So. It is valuable to have this type of research going on, and that's why I hope that people out there who are interested will go to thepeoplesbookproject.com to take a look at this and some of the other research that Andrew has been doing over the years. And uh, if there, if you if you appreciate this research and if you want to help fund it, right now there is a, a chapter fundraiser going on for four chapters that uh, Andrew is working on, talking about the grand areas of the world, which... America could control and dominate for their resources. So there is going to be a chapter on Asia, one on Middle East and North Africa, one on Sub-Saharan Africa, and one on Latin America. And the fundraising goal for those four chapters of the book is $800. That's $200 per chapter, which is pretty much nothing when I imagine you really boil down the research and writing the <laughs> time that goes into this. I'm imagining it's not $15 an hour, really. So it's even less than that, no. probably. But, but certainly this is a valuable project, and as I say, I think this type of crowdsourcing of, uh, of various projects, not just books, but, but all sorts of different projects, is really the way to go, and it's, the, it's so easy to do now that we live in this world that's connected instantaneously through the Internet for free, through all of these social media and other uh, ways of accessing each other and finding out about each other's work, and ultimately, hopefully, supporting each other as we start to become really more and more powerful through, the, uh, through this technology, which... Um, which I think people are really only beginning to really see the, the beginnings of. So, Andrew, just in the final moments here, uh, I've directed people to thepeoplesbookproject.com and andrewgavinmarshall.com. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, do you have any other places you'd like to direct people to? Um, yeah, you can reach me at all those, uh, Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn, all through my websites. Uh, you'll get those links on andrewgavinmarshall.com, and you'll be able to find me all over social media. All right, and again, people can tune into BoilingFrogsPost.com for the premiere of Empire, Power, and People, a new weekly podcast by Andrew Gavin Marshall. So absolutely essential information, and I hope people do check it out. So, Andrew, thank you for your time tonight, and thank you to all of you out there listening for your time, and I'm looking forward to talking to Madison Rupert of EndTheLie.com tomorrow night. So until then, take care, and thanks for listening. <laughs>